Welcome to episode 13 of the Ground to Sound podcast. If you're new here, my name is Stefan Lemos. You can follow me on Instagram at Stefan Alex Music. Please make sure to rate and review the podcast and follow on Spotify. I'm so excited for today's guest. On this episode, I spoke with Desmond Child, the legendary songwriter and producer. He is in the Songwriters Hall of Fame. And his hits as a songwriter include I Was Made for Loving You by Kiss, I Hate Myself for Loving You by Joan Jett and the Black Hearts, Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer, You Give Love a Bad Name, and Bad Medicine. A few Aerosmith tracks you may have heard, Dude Looks Like a Lady and Crazy. He's just done so much. He was a part of Ricky Martin's Living La Vida Loca. He co-founded the Latin Songwriters Hall of Fame along with fellow Cuban-American composer Rudy Perez. He also has an autobiography coming out called Living on a Prayer, Big Songs, Big Life. Based on what he told me in our conversation, it seems like he's the busiest he's ever been in his life, and it's such an exciting time. It was so great talking to him. So please enjoy my conversation with the legendary Desmond Child. Where are you located? I am located in New Jersey. Wow. Yeah. I, uh, I, my, fa- my favorite place. Yeah, how is it your favorite place? Well, that's where I um, wrote with Bon Jovi. Yes, of course. Of course. And, yeah. you know, you, you know my friend Carlo, Carlo Colasacco. Oh, love him. Yeah, and he, uh, I don't know if he's told you, but him and I actually played in a cover band together here in Jersey for many, many years. And every time we kicked into that living on a prayer, let me tell you, without a doubt, just the, you know, the the place went wild. And, uh, you know, since we're talking about New Jersey, I can just say that I know you've, I've heard in interviews before, you mentioned that that chorus really changed the way um, choruses were written in rock music. Do you, why do you think that's true? What's so special about that chorus of living on a prayer? Well, originally, the chorus was what we now know as the the B section. You got to hold on to what we've got. When we in the course of writing it, you right. know, we were like pretty happy with that being the chorus. <laughs> and then uh, we said, you know what? Let's make that the B section. Let's let's kick it into high gear. And so we added the, um, you know. The next section, which is the thing that made the song soar. Sure, yeah, when that B section comes in from, I mean, for me, I, I think that's, that's great as a chorus, but to really understand that there's another level it can go to, um, really, I mean, just just shows the the professionalism of songwriters like, like yourself. And whose idea was it to really kick it up a notch there at that last chorus? I'm curious. Um, well... John's always cursing me for that. <laughs> I'm sure he is. I did. said, oh, you know, why'd you have to suggest that modulation? <laughs> <laughs> so I don't even remember suggesting it, but he's always saying that maybe, you know, just to be funny. But, yeah. um, um, you know, it does, it does get quite high. <laughs> yeah, it does, and I'm sure singing it these days is not, you know, is not as fun. Maybe. 
Um, oh, and, and and like you know, they're just you know killing it every time they perform it live. Oh, you know, it's okay. it's the last song, and no one will leave that venue without hearing that song. So you'll see, you know, parents there with their kids asleep on their shoulders and their earplugs in, <laughs> and um, you, they'll be standing there and they'll be screaming at the top of their lungs. You know, you can't even hear the band really when it when it starts to go. You cannot hear the band on stage, and they're amplified. It's all just a huge stadium screaming it. It's really <laughs> thrilling. I mean, I only have an experience of playing that at at little bar bar venues around here, and I can say the same about about those shows as well <laughs> here in Jersey. It just it just never gets old. It's amazing. Um, I don't know how much you know about this podcast, but I do talk a little bit about coffee as like a change of pace. Um, well, I'm it, drinking coffee right now. Perfect. And I was wondering what your relationship is to, to coffee these days and, and how that's grown um, throughout years of drinking it, if it's been years. Well, um, my mother was Cuban, so... Ever since I was little, we were given, you know, cafe con leche mm -hmm. when we were like in in our bottle. I mean, <laughs> it was sure. just like I don't remember a day not drinking coffee. Um, so, you know, around here we drink a brand called Bustelo. And, um, mm. you know, we we make the Cuban coffee and then we add the foamy milk and it's and it's so delicious. It's just so great, yeah. and uh, it it totally it totally perks me up. Yeah. Do you find any? I mean, I actually have Colombian background, so the coffee culture there in Colombia is is um, is wild as well as with Cubans. You grow other things in Colombia too. Yes, yes, we definitely do. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that also seem to perk people up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> way more than coffee. Yeah, way more than coffee. And you don't want to mix the two, no. Um, but I was wondering, do you find any correlation between coffee and your creativity? I, I think so. I mean, I think there's, it's proven that, that coffee, you know, kind of excites the, the mind makes it sharper. And, um, so, you know, I just know that, um, you know, I'll be feeling, you know, neutral soon as I have the coffee, I'm ready to work. Yeah. You know, so maybe it's just habit or maybe it really does something. But, um, hey, you know. Yeah, whatever gets the job done. Then, it right? worked! It worked! <laughs> it seems to have worked, believe me. I'm sure it's mixed in with a bunch of, you know, at least for me, it's like getting some work done, running to the bathroom, getting some work done, you know, back and forth. Um, well... Yeah, yeah, especially right? at my age now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, I mean, I've actually never spoken to someone with as much experience and with such a, such a background as yourself and to have so many charting songs. But I do want to take it back to, I, I know you grew up in Miami and then you eventually ended up in New York City. Was that in the 70s? Yes, I... Um came up to live in Woodstock, New York when, when I quit high school uh, and um, I was 17, 
with my writing partner, Virgil Knight. And so we had a duo called Nightchild. And we made our first demo up there with Van Morrison's, you know, guys from Van Morrison's band and um, got free studio time. And um, we were able to do something. And then we went down and met, did our first pitch meeting to Seymour Stein, who had just started uh, Sire Records. And um, then then it got so cold up there and our car didn't even have heat. So we went back down to Miami, Miami Beach. And then I started going to night school to make up my high school credits. And I was able to graduate with my class of uh, 72 at Miami Beach High School. And, um, you know, so, you know, there I went to junior college for two years. And um, then for my third year, I got into NYU and I got scholarships as a singing major. And I also studied uh, directing, uh, theater directing as a minor. Mm. And, um, you know, during that period of time, uh, I had met um, in Miami in my second year, I had met Maria Vidal and she and uh, her best friend, Diana Griselli, um, you know, were singers, actress, actors, and uh, we all went up to, you know, they came up to New York as well. And they all got, you know, they got into NYU, and, you know, and uh, it's it's like that, you know. So I was going to school and Maria um, eventually dropped out of college. But, you know, she was working as a singing waitress at a place called Once Upon a Stove. And her waitress name was Gina Velvet. And so hmm. when we went to write Living on a Prayer, um, you know, I was thinking about her story, uh, her, her and my story, you know, um, living in a little apartment, struggling, and I was home writing songs. And, um, and you know, my original name was John Barrett, Johnny Barrett. So I um, suggested Johnny and Gina. Now, meanwhile, you know, John was had in mind his best friends, Bonnie and Joe, who he went to high school with. So, you know, it's kind of like, um, and Richie, you know, was thinking about his own parents because, uh, you know, they were, you know, struggling and, and, um, you know, their love for each other kept them going. So mm -hmm. we, the three of us brought our own references and stories to the table so i suggested johnny and gina and then john said uh i can't sing johnny and i was like looking at him i was just yeah. being like <laughs> thinking about myself you know being johnny and gina right sure. and because it had alliteration which i like johnny and gina mm -hmm. and so he he said no i can't sing johnny my name is johnny people call me johnny and it's like oh and, and it'll sound like i'm singing about myself it's like oh so then it was like Johnny, Johnny, and I think I think uh, John said Tommy, because maybe he was thinking of Bonnie, you know, mm, right. <laughs> uh, uh, Tommy. Um, just that was it was like kicking around, you know, that sound. So Tommy and Gina were born. Wow, and it's all from that. Uh, from so from that experience being in Miami and then eventually going to New York. When you went back to Miami to finish. Uh, junior college, what was yeah. the what was the music scene like in Miami at that time? Well, at, around that time, you know, I had you know 
uh, before I met Maria, I had another girlfriend, Lisa Roberts, who was slightly older than me. And she um, had taken me dancing to gay bars where they were playing, you know, um, Casey and the Sunshine Band, uh, Barry White, the Bee Gees, um, all of this, like, um, uh, you know, disco music. And so that's what I was listening to when I was going out with her. And she took me to a gay bar and, you know, left me there. Mistake. (laughs) (laughs) So that's when I realized, you know, that I, I really was, you know, I guess I rationalized it in my head was like bisexual, I guess, because I like girls too. Uh, but then eventually, as I started maturing and I was living with Maria for four years in New York, I realized in the end that I was more gay than I was bi. And so then I had to make a grown-up decision and, uh, you know, face that. Yeah. So I had uh, we had our group Desmond Child and Rouge, and um, we had made an album on Capitol Records that had like dance influences, rock influences, Latin influences. We just threw all of our influences into it. And we were, you know, kind of ahead of our time in that in that way. Also our presentation with me singing and then the three women in very kind of uh, sexy, you know, matching outfits uh, with a lot of makeup on. I mean, that that later was done big time by Prince and Madonna and, you know, people like that. But we were way before. So I'm talking about 1975, 76, 77. And we played all the little clubs in New York. So that's, that's, that's how it was, you know, and, and, you know, trying to graduate from college, which I did in 76. 77 was just all about Desmond Child and Rouge and also working, you know, shit jobs you know, so we can keep ourselves going. But we got signed and pretty, pretty early uh, by an A&R guy named Richard Landis, and he signed us to Capitol Records based on the West Coast. Now, the West Coast didn't really un- understand our kind of music at all. We were kind of like blue-eyed soul, and we had been influenced by, you know, of course, Laura Nero, Todd Rundgren, uh, you know, just like Hall & Oates were, you know, that mm. were, you know, kind of happening, you know, or emerging at the same time. But, you know, what happened was, you know, in 1979, it was like the death of disco or anything Mm -hmm. that remotely sounded like it. I was just watching a documentary on the Bee Gees uh, called um, uh, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart? And it's so moving. And you see how massively you know, successful and important the Bee Gees were before dance music. They were more like the Beatles. And then they shifted gears and they they moved to Miami and they switched producers. And, uh, you know, they had now Albie Galutin instead of um, Arif Martin. And they started making this pop, hyper pop, very vocal, like music that was not really like street but it had elements of disco. And so in 1979, it was um, Rick Dees, this uh, disc disc jockey, made this whole campaign to end disco. So it was almost (laughs) like Nazi times. They 
they went to games and then they had these like off-road vehicles and everybody would come and throw disco records on a big pile and the the RVs would like not RVs uh, those off-road vehicles would like um roll over them and then they'd set them on fire you know you know disco wow. is dead and it was very racist and homophobic really because you know it was like all white people just having had enough of gay culture and black music mm. and um interesting you know so we you know not even consciously i guess you know feeling also the power of punk because we were an opening act even though we were blue-eyed so we were opening act for you know punk groups like um patty smith at cbgb's and the lower manhattan ocean club and places like that and so we i started getting super influenced by you know punk music and punk guitars and we made a we met a brilliant guitarist who toured with us ge smith who later went into hollow notes and then later became the musical uh director of saturday night live and married mm -hmm. gilda radner and all of that and so we uh, were very influenced by his guitar playing and we made a second album called runners in the night and so like our first album was colorful and fun and popish and and all vocal driven and then we made a second album the same year it was released, 1979, where um, it was dark. It, the cover was all black and white and somber. And it was really all based on my coming to terms with my sexual orientation. And, um, you know, the, the opening song was The Truth Comes Out. And it was a song that I was singing to uh, Maria uh, about, you know, how I had to, you know, face face all of this and then the name of the album was runners in the night because i you know i had met somebody and i was like you know when she was working as a waitress i was running over you know to see him and you know in the middle of the night and so that's the whole basis of that and as a matter of fact last friday we re-released the two desmond child and rouge albums they're remastered on bmg and uh if you go to our um website uh com, you can see a little movie about us and you can also uh hear uh you know you and if you go to follow us on our instagram and facebook uh we're you know at desmond child and rouge and it's and is spelt out and um you know we we are now you know kind of like starting new music and this friday we're releasing a remake of our original hit our love is insane recorded wow. you know f from scratch it's it's like contemporary um more like contemporary pop dance music of today. so this friday october 23rd we're releasing our love is insane double x uh and because it's like you know 2020 and <laughs> um and then we have new music that we're continuing to record. We're going forward and we've reunited. So it's so much fun. And, you know, as a solo artist, I, this summer I released a, uh, a song called Viva La Diva, where I feature Countess Luann of the Real Housewives of New York. And I was featured on the finale 
episode, um, you know, just like a month ago or something like that. And um, I have my next feature is going to be featuring Alice Cooper. And we have a duet together. And that one I do sing on. And it's really massively like huge rock sounding. It's like so much fun. It's like the verses are more like urban and then Mm -hmm. it explodes when Alice comes in on the choruses. It's like a, it's like poison part two. And so, um, you know, I'm very excited about that. And I'm also hoping that, you know, Scott Stapp, um, will, will sing something with me. Um, you know, and I, you know, I'm not doing albums. I'm just doing singles every few months because, you know, just drop it into the Spotify space or whatever. Yeah. And, um, you know, I don't have to, you know, worry about, you know, touring or anything like that. And eventually, you know, like I'm, I've been collecting a very beautiful, um, collection of music since I signed with BMG last year, I had a live album called Desmond Child live that did really well. And, you know, this year we're, I'm up for a bunch of Grammy nominations for that. So, you know, it's really fun to be able to not be a studio rat all the time and to make my own music and to, you know, do other things. I'm producing a television series with Andreas Carlson and other partners called Transcon, and it's the making of Lou Pearlman and the boy band Revolution. So it's scripted. And we've gotten we've gotten a deal. We have a showrunner. Writers are writing it. I'm writing um, uh, Broadway musicals. Uh, so when Broadway comes back, I'll be ready to go. And uh, one of them's called Cuba Libre, and it's the true story of my family before and after the Cuban Revolution. I'm, I've co-written that with my partner David Sigerson. And um, you know, it's like it's like that. You know, it's just like being creative. I've co-written my autobiography that'll be out this you know next year as well called living on a prayer big songs big life and i co-wrote that with david ritz and who's a very distinguished writer of uh, music and sports personalities and so you know it's like at this time you know i can do whatever i want and by chance you know it's like i keep joking like when the world goes down when the world goes low when the world goes low, I go high. And I just had a number one song in Europe for five weeks with Ava Max called Kings and Queens. Yes, it's a great which song. Which uh, really climbed up the charts here. And so it's really, you know, it's like, wow, really? I mean, that just came by surprise. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I'm I'm looking to, to co-write. Um, you know, I want to, you know, I'm I'm not tied to any style really. I I just always think about the story and the song, the content, and that's why I just you know I can I can be you know kind of genre fluid. Yeah, and that seems to be the way everyone's listening to music these days. Um, a lot of people would argue that Spotify has has really um, changed the way kids are even thinking about genres. So I think that's so important right now. Yeah. And, you know, I, I heard, I, you know, there's so much music out there. I even heard that there's a system called Forgetify. Have you heard about that? I have not. It's the songs that have been put up on Spotify that no one has heard. So <laughs> if you go on Forgetify, uh, on Forgetify, 
you um, listen to something randomly, and now they they they're like they get, they immediately go off of Forgetify because they've been listened to once. <laughs> oh man! I haven't even so, gone to try it out, but I think that's so much fun. That's so interesting. You know, because I mean, they say there are like, you know, tens of thousands of songs released every week around the, you know, all around the world because Spotify is in regional; it's global. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, yeah, it's it, it it's really amazing. So people from all kinds of uh, you know cultures and languages are putting up their music. And that's kind of egalitarian, you know, it's an the grand equalizer. But for a professional, you know, songwriter, it gets hard because the competition is like so vast, you can get lost in the ocean of music. And then it's hard to, you know, pay bills (laughs) that way. Yeah. Before, when I first got to Nashville, uh, after, you know, I had done all that work in the 80s. I came in the early 90s because I had heard Garth Brooks and I was determined that I would get a song cut by Garth Brooks, which I did through um, a writer I met, um, Victoria Shaw, and song, a song called Where Your Road Leads, which was a duet with Trisha Yearwood. The song that I, I mean, this is led maybe uh, urban cowboy legend, uh, kind of thing, uh, but that uh, that was a song that got them to fall in love. So one song, you know, broke up two marriages, like whatever. <laughs> it worked out. <laughs> it was for the best. Yeah, it's always for the best. <laughs> and so I, I started coming to Nashville, and that's where I live now with my husband. And our sons just graduated from high school and went off to college. Uh, are their twins, Roman and Nero? And actually, we made a while we were here raising our children, we made a documentary uh, called "To the Story of Roman and Nero" that's on uh, Amazon Prime and iTunes. Oh wow! And if you if you go on our website to t w o the documentary dot com, you'll see a twelve year journey, and it's a wonderful experience. And at one point, um, you know. John Bon Jovi is their godfather, so he, at their blessing when they're six months old, he wrote a poem called Two uh, that he shared with everyone, and that's why the movie's called Two. Mm. So, it, see, it all, it all you comes, know, yeah. roll, comes back to New Jersey. <laughs> right, right. You can't get away from Jersey. You cannot escape it no matter what. And I, and No I, matter what, <laughs> you still have to get, get off the uh, turnpike. Right. <laughs> <laughs> somewhere so yeah i mean you cannot avoid it you're you're rattling off all of these projects you're a part of now and now it makes a little more sense saying that your your kids are going off to college now it's like oh now maybe maybe that that time is opened up and you feel like you're putting a lot of time and effort into uh into these other projects um but well it's so much fun because i don't feel the you know it's like you know i I, our sons are grown. They're off to college. You know, it's like a a time when we're free now. You know, to do more our own things. So, you know, Curtis has his own projects and pursuits, and you know, I try to get him to work on my projects <laughs> <laughs> as much as possible. 
uh, so I don't have to hire another person. Right. Yeah. He's, he's right there with <laughs> and, you. Uh, and you well. know, he doesn't, he doesn't like that, but, right. um, um, you know, it's like you get to the point where, you know, it's like now or never. I mean, you, we hear, I mean, I haven't really known except for Carlos dad, our friend Carlos dad died yeah. of COVID and he was a, you know, a man younger than me. Mm-hmm. And it's frightening, you know, that this is happening and people's lives are getting cut short. And, you know, at the time when they should really be enjoying their life, they worked their asses off. And now then this. And so, um, you know, but it is always making me think about my own mortality. So the only option is like, do what you want now. Yeah. Do what you want to do now. Stop talking about, you know, what you're going to do someday. You have to do it now. You don't know how long now will last for you. Absolutely. It's very inspiring. And, um, you know, speaking of the the book you mentioned earlier, what was that process like? Was it your first book? Your first dive into a book there? Yes. And, you know, it really, it took four and a half years, honestly, because, you know, I was, David has other projects. He just released the Lenny Kravitz uh, book and he has like four books coming out. So, you know, in between the cracks, we would work and he, the majority of the book um, we wrote in Greece because we would go away in the summer and he came along with us and stayed a few weeks. And, you know, every day was just like, you know, telling story he would record it he would send it to the transcriber in la and then it would come back overnight and then we would be editing you know that you know it's he would ask me a question and i'd talk like i am now ramble on and on and on (laughs) and then we would find the golden nuggets in it and so yes and i'm um also publishing a book uh of my mother's poetry and song lyrics because she was a distinguished poet and um, she had worked her whole life on her book and finally she passed away in 2012 and at that time I got to get you know I was uh, inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2008 and around 2012 when my mother passed away I went to the board of directors of the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Now I was on the board of directors as well. And I said, how about a Latin Songwriters Hall of Fame, you know, under the umbrella of the Songwriters Hall of Fame? Because when I was inducted, there had only been two previous Latino songwriters inducted in 50 years. And so, you know, uh, it's the, the sort of the same reason why there had to be a Latin Grammy, because, right. um, you know, there's, there's still a Latin category in the regular Grammys, but, um, you know, there's so many genres, so many people, there's just not room, you know, it's, it's too vast. And the, and the, um, like with Latin music, I mean, it started 400 years ago, (laughs) (laughs) you know, when the, when the missionaries came and started writing, you know, secular songs on the borders of their Bibles and basing it on melodies that they heard, from the indigenous um, uh, tribes, and then later on, when the when the slaves uh, came over, were made to come over from Africa, their music became integrated into Latin music, um, 
And so, you know, it's a long history and it deserved its own Hall of Fame. So, um, you know, at that time, so we created, uh, then they told me I should get together with Rudy Perez, who had been, you know, always suggesting this for, you know, 16 years before, but nobody within the board got around to doing it. So they gave it to me and Rudy and I created uh, the Latin Songwriters Hall of Fame, which is at latinsonghall.org. And then we have La Musa Awards. And La Musa is based on a sculpture of my mother playing guitar. And so that's become our Oscar. And and so uh, our first inductee was Julio Iglesias. And so we're in our eighth year when we were supposed to have our our um, award now, like, uh, but we had to postpone it. So we postponed it till next year. Um, and it's going to be at the Hard Rock Hotel in Hollywood, Florida. And um, it's been so exciting. But anyway, I, that's one of the things that I did to, you know, kind of make sure that my mother's memory was kept alive. So now I'm putting out a book of that. And uh, there's a third book I'm working on, which is a textbook for songwriters, uh, which uh, I've been co-writing with Jody Marr. She's a very distinguished um, songwriter and producer in her own right. She wrote and co-wrote and pro- produced that song Grace Kelly with Mika and all of that. And she's a professor at Belmont uh, University in Nashville. And mm-hmm. so she teaches a course in songwriting. And she re- she told me, like, there's no book. There's no definitive book. There's lots of, of uh, you know, biographies of songwriters that talk about, you know, how they wrote this and that song. But, you know, it's also talking about the, their wives and how many divorces they had and all that. No, she says there is no book that a professor could base a course on. So we started writing a book called Anatomy of a Hit, song, uh, Masterclass in Songwriting, and we break it down like in a way that's never been all put in one book before. So that's, been, that's three books that I'm coming out with over the next two years. So, wow. you know, it's like, you know, now that the boys, you know, are – away now you know there's all this you know extra time to do all of these creative projects and also think about my legacy you know what is what am i leaving behind what is my legacy do people even know who d period child is that they see attached to all these songs you know all, all you know most people think that the artist is the one that solely wrote the songs but I, you know, I was kind of like the ultimate co-writer, and I would go from band to band and 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 uh, become kind of for that period of time a fifth or sixth member of that band. Um, and we'd write a whole bunch of songs, and some of them made it onto the record, some of them not. But a, a lot of the songs that I co-wrote became singles, and um, so you know, that's sort of like how I had made my career after Desmond Child and Rouge broke up. Mm. Right. So, I mean, so you spent a lot of time as a member of a band. And then, of course, as a songwriter, did you feel attached to any one particular thing in the beginning? Did you think this is where I belong? Or do you think you played between both and you just loved it all? Are you talking about my songwriting or my sex life? <laughs> you could throw that in there if you'd like, <laughs> but 
but in terms of being a, yeah being a band a band member which uh could be like a you know if your sex life was involved in your in your with your bandmates uh well that was true in my first band right 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 uh, but the the thing is is that um i was so lucky to have met paul stanley of kiss because he became my my mentor protector and he co-wrote a song with me in 1978 that became huge called I Was Made for Loving You. Mm-hmm. And um, he's the one that he had gone on tour in Europe and Bon Jovi was, an, was one of the opening acts for Kiss. And he made friends with John and he said, hey, you should try you know, co-writing with Desmond. And so, you know, later on, I find out that, you know, much later, years later, I found out that John and Richie really didn't want to co-write with me for themselves. They wanted to co-write songs that they thought maybe we could get covers on so they could make extra money to help them keep going. Mm. And uh, the very first day uh, that we got together in Richie's, uh, you know, uh, parents' house where he still lived, a little wooden house at the end of a cul-de-sac, uh, in New Jersey, um, and that song was "You Give Love a Bad Name." That was our first song, and I think it turned out so well they decided to keep it for themselves. But um, that wasn't their initial, um, the you know, kind of reason they got together with me. But um, you know, that's why it, everything all comes back to New Jersey. <laughs> always, it always, always does, and. Uh, so that's really how you found your place as a songwriter. Were you, throughout all those years, um, you know, the 80s, 90s, were you going back to performing at all? Or it was just all well, songwriting for you? I mean, it became all songwriting. And then also a lot of our friends that had been performing with us in the clubs of, of, of New York, they all started dying of AIDS. And so I lost dozens of close friends. It was terrible. It was scary. So as a reaction to that, I started following spiritual paths, you know, and so one of one of the paths that I took was a kind of new age cult with small group of people with one, you know, very charismatic leader. Um, And it sounds like America. (laughs) (laughs) and um um and so you know i had sort of been living on this commune that we were all building and then i would come into the city and work four days a week and then go back and work you know putting up sheetrock and pruning trees and all that for the other three days and it was kind of a beautiful time because it was like all the people the you know the fourth day was like half girls half boys and um, it was really fun. And all of those people kind of came out of music and theater also. So most of the guys were gay. I think they were all gay, to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. And um, But we weren't really, you know, like being like that because we were trying to be so spiritual. And so um, during that period of time is when I worked on some of the biggest, you know, records that I collaborated on, Bon Jovi, Aerosmith. Alice Cooper, Michael Bolton, Joan Jett, Cher. I was I was still living in that 
in that commune for that that four year four and a half year period. Then at the end of that is when I went to Russia with with a bunch of songwriters, um, including Cindy Lauper, Michael Bolton, Diane Warren, um, Brenda Russell, um, Holly Knight. Oh my God, it was so crazy. Mike Stoller of Lieber and Stoller, um, Barry Mann of um, Man and Wild. Wow. Uh, we, it was 48 of us, and we went to co-write with Russian songwriters, and we all stayed in this big hotel. There was like a jail with guards on, wow. and, you know, on every floor, and all this kind of stuff because we, you weren't allowed to go and mingle with Russian nationals. You had to stay in the hotel, but of course we all escaped and, you know, had the best fun. And, um, that's when I realized that the way that the country was living, that's how I was living back in the commune. It was became more and more strict. We all had to look alike, talk alike, um, wear the same baseball cap. I mean, it was all the same. It was like that. And, um, and so I, I, something in me just said, no, I, my spirit is being suppressed here. And so I broke away. And during that period of time, I went to the Moscow Peace Festival the second year, 1989, with Bon Jovi and Motley Crue and Alice Cooper, Ozzy Osbourne. Um, I mean, it, I, that's a very famous, yeah. um, you know, event. And, um, you know, I, that, around that time is when I met Curtis, my husband. And so I, 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 you know, because when I was in the commune, I wasn't allowed to be, you know, with a partner, you know, we were supposed to be, you know, almost like monks or something, um, not attached so that we could concentrate on saving the world and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very much like monks and priests and things. Um, and, uh, then I realized, you know, I, I can't live like that. And I met the love of my life and we've been together ever since 32 years. Wow. So you've really, so in all that traveling, do you believe that life experiences is really what brings out some creativity for you? I mean, you couldn't really just be locked in a room writing songs 24 seven. Like Diane Warren. <laughs> I mean, is that her style? That's a that's a perfect case that life experience does not necessarily make music. Okay, she is so dedicated to her music; she's only made her life about that. Mm. You know, I mean, she does other things. She, you know, in her late these latter years, she's bought a farm, uh, you know, in Malibu that takes care of you know all these different species of animals. It's like she's building Noah's Ark up there, <laughs> and um, she's you know does amazing things and uh but basically you know she's a person that has created all these love songs all that passion and longing and heartbreak um based on her creative imagination Hmm. like emily dickinson you know that wrote to some imagined lover and i think that that is a big part of it you know how you know like the way you project into you know something that you could not have ever experienced like the world of Alice Cooper and the songs and the, the kind of, um, kind of sadomasochistic content. 
that is in that kind of world of, of Alice Cooper, that's, I mean, and even for him, you know, it's just all in your creative imagination. So, no, you don't have to, you know, go and get your heart broken to go and, you know, write a heartbreak song or, or you know, cheat on somebody so that you can write a cheating song. Right. I mean, you know, right. unless you're in country music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the imagination needs to be real strong there. Um, well, I mean, if you're if you are an artist, it always is strong. You're born yeah, that way. Yeah. You know, and that's that's the that's the reason why not everyone is an artist because we can't have everybody, you know, in the world, you know, spending all their time writing songs and poems and painting paintings. Right. Everybody, you know, a certain segment of society has to do that. And they they are compelled to do it. They can't do anything else. It's in their DNA because for our survival as a human race, we need all kinds of people, you know, that do all kinds of things. And being, you know, somebody that's focused on numbers doesn't mean you're anything less than somebody who's, you know, writing a sonnet that is remembered, you know, for all time. Yeah. You know, it's everyone has their worth and their place. So I understand that. So that never, you know, it's like, and when I'm just like forward thinking all the time, I just like, don't think about, I mean, even though I've spent the last few years kind of uh, cataloging and, you know, kind of, you know, kind of journaling or whatever my history, I don't really sit back and say, oh, look at how great I am or how many things I did and all that kind of stuff, because I'm thinking about today. I'm thinking about, you know, a writing session that's coming up soon with this cool group called 100 Gex. I don't know if you've listened to their music. It's like it's mm. like punk, electronic craziness with Motown mixed in. I mean, I just oh, wow. they are so eclectic. They're more eclectic than I've ever I ever was. And uh we're going to try seeing if we can come up with with a song to, together. And uh, I'm very, very excited about them. They're a duo and um, just uh, very, very excited. So, you know, they're young. They're doing something crazy. You know, so I, I, I recommend everybody listen to 100 Gex, you know, and then clean your house while you're, <laughs> while you're, while you're listening to put it full blast and go crazy. Good. That'll help me then. Um, before I let you go... I have a little segment here where I want to, I have two, two things I want to ask you about, but I'd like to know about lessons you've learned in these particular things because you've been a songwriter and um, for, for so long and you've been in the industry for so long. Um, and so I'll just say, when I say the word collaboration, can you think of any lessons you've learned through collaborating for so many years? When you enter that writing session, it's like a sacred circle. And, you know, what, the whole world drops away and you, you know, the two or three of you collaborating or more uh, live in the, in the world of that song. You know, we, it's just like everything drops away. You don't think about any problems or anything, anything. You're just in the moment inside the song. And, you know, you draw your strengths from each other. And, um, you know, you, you have to, you know, 
any idea that's that is thrown into the center of the circle you can't take possession of it because you know basically you know we're just retreading a lot of ideas and hoping that it'll tumble out original but um you know if you're attached to your ideas then it's harder to find new things and also it hurts when you're attached to things because if and nobody agrees with your idea then one could feel diminished or let's say you write this great song that you everybody thinks is great and it doesn't make it it doesn't make it even on an album it's just in a drawer mm. and so one could feel like a failure if your ego is attached to the ideas contained within it so what i've learned is you know you go in you don't take ownership of anything you just throw ideas in you know an idea of you of yours an idea of yours could ignite somebody else's imagination and they throw in something that then excites you even more and you go, no, what I said before was wrong. It should be this, you know, and it goes back and forth. Mm. That's super exciting. And um, I always split the songs equally with my co-writers. So, you know, there's a, there's a, uh, a phrase in Nashville, which is write a word, get a third. <laughs> You know, because, like you know, it. because if you're writing with the same group all the time, it all comes out in, the, in a why. Somebody may bring a song in that's already, you know, like more than half already set and finished. And then everybody helps to make it better. So and then there may be a song where, you know, you said, hey, does anybody want coffee? You go in and make coffee, come back and the song's written. Mm. But you're still a co-writer. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because that's how it goes, and it all comes yeah. out in the wash. Yeah. You can't measure what, how many words somebody wrote and then say, okay, well, you, you wrote these many words, so that's how much you get. I mean, that, that's, that mm -hmm. would be madness. Yeah, it's impossible. And also, you know, um, I try to encourage everyone to get real clear on the splits of a song. So if it's 50-50, it's 50-50. If it's thirds, that gets a little more complicated because sometimes the publishing companies will be registering it as 33.33. Mm -hmm. But if it's three people, somebody has to be 33.34 for it to all be 100%. Mm -hmm. Because if a song in the computer doesn't add up to 100%, the royalties stop. Hmm. It doesn't flow. It's hmm. a misregistration. And most people don't know that. They go, ah, oh, just take a third, you know, 33.33. And if the three of them do it to be polite because somebody doesn't want to take that extra little point, uh, then you can be messing everybody up. So I encourage people to really, you know, to sign uh, songwriter information sheets that clearly state who you are, your address, your publisher, what uh, – performance rights organization you're with, what publisher you are with, and then it says the split on the song, and you sign your signature next to the split, and then everybody gets, uh, you know, you scan that, everybody gets a copy of it, Every, you know, everybody along the way can see clearly, because sometimes people come back and say, hey, I wrote all those lyrics, so then you guys, you know, I'm willing to split the music part with you. It's like, no, it's not, that's not how it works, man.
Yeah. You know, and disputes can arise and it can ruin your working relationship with a fantastic combination of people because people aren't clear on that uh, split issue. And in fact, you know, at ASCAP, where I've been for f over 40 years and I'm on the board of ASCAP as well, you know, we have a thing uh, that I came up with with uh, Michelle Lewis and Alex Shapiro, uh, two other board members called Splitsville. And we did a little animation, you know, called Splitsville USA. <laughs> and, you know, to just to show how like, you know, 33.33 adds up to 99. Yeah. It's no good. It's no good. <laughs> and and so people I'm I'm like a, a stickler about that and I'm a, like a preacher about that. Because these registrations uh, they get stuck in nowhere's land and they they're called orphan works. Wow. And then they go into the money from those things because people, you know, there is money even if it's not registered, right? I go into a thing called the black box. And then those monies, you know, recently in the Music Modernization Act, they created a thing called the um, MLC, the Music Licensing Collective, to deal with the orphan works and all of that. And so it's always kind of like the formula of how that gets divided is always, you know, something that, you know, is still being looked at, but at least there was a step towards dealing with the orphan works. Mm. So that's my, that's yeah. my that's my 33.34%. No, that's so important. Yeah, it's so important. And uh, one last thing, just since you're, since I'm on the other end of fatherhood as you are, I have a daughter who's a year and a half. I, I have to ask, any lessons you've learned from parenting? Watch a documentary called The Social Dilemma. Ooh, okay. Yeah, that's a new one, right? I yeah, was, and okay. I was I was in shock, and I realized how hooked I am to my phone and, you know, on, you know, all of that. And this really explains, like the people that created all these systems explain, you know, they're like former employees of Google, Apple, um, you know, you know, Twitter and, you know, mm -hmm. Amazon. And they explain how these systems work that are very profitable for the companies. And um, and all of them who have created this stuff do not let their children um, use, you know, phones or computers or any of that until they're like, you know, until social pressure makes them have to have it, which is usually in junior high sometime. Hmm. But, uh, you know, you can see how unhappy uh, and empty all of these systems leave us feeling. Yeah. And um, I think that, you know, I wish I had done that with my sons, you know, because early on I thought it was fun to see them play with their little video games and stuff. But in the end, I don't think it was good for them. And mm. I, I wish we had been more strict on that and encouraged them to do creative things, you know, because they, I mean, <laughs> They're even thinking about studying computer science because they're so into it. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like, I don't know. I, I think that that's my, my biggest advice is, um, you know, to try to encourage a child to think for themselves and create for themselves 
I mean, they were in Montessori schools where they were made to paint and, you know, create. But even that Montessori school didn't really have a great music program, hmm. you know, because they didn't have the funding for that. And also none of the other private schools were made to have it because, you know, the public schools pulled out all that stuff out, you know, I don't know, starting in Reagan times when they needed money, they just pull it out of education. Yeah. So then, you know, that was the start of the dumbing of America, hmm. which we see the result of. Yeah, that's definitely something I'm I'm keeping an eye on, and uh, I appreciate that. I'm gonna have to watch that documentary. Uh, you've because been, remember yeah. that we're born with soul, you know, and that society and it's all of its you know conditions and competition and rules and how to look and not to look and all of that takes the shine off our soul. And in being an artist. You can't afford not to be in touch with your soul or else you have no business. Mm, so I'm always kind of being, you know, looking into spiritual things and all of that. And I mean, I look into, you know, absolute atheism and agnosticism. And I look into, you know, I grew up in Catholicism and I, I look, I follow, you know, follow the, you know, read and study the works of Deepak Chopra and Marianne mm -hmm. Williamson. It's like, I'm everything. I believe and don't believe, but what I do believe is that as long as you're alive, <laughs> like the song I co-wrote with John and Richie, uh, I live while I'm alive and sleep when I'm dead, I'll sleep when I'm dead. <laughs> and we're back to New Jersey. That's right. Mm. All roads lead, all turnpikes lead to New Jersey. <laughs> you can quote me on that. What a beautiful way to end it there. Thank you so much. You've been so gracious with your time. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Bye -bye. Take care. Bye.